Life Talk Radio presents Health and Longevity, the program dedicated to bringing you cutting-edge information and interviews that can change your life. On each edition, nutritionist, registered dietitian, and board-certified anti-aging health practitioner, Dr. John Westerdahl, will show you how to achieve a longer, healthier life using the latest breakthroughs in nutrition, wellness, and lifestyle medicine. And now, here's your host, Dr. John Westerdahl. Welcome to Health and Longevity. I'm Dr. John Westerdahl, and on today's program, we will visit with cardiologist Dr. Stephen Sinatra. Dr. Sinatra is a leading expert on coenzyme Q10. Dr. Sinatra will talk to us about coenzyme Q10 and its role in heart health and anti-aging. We will also discuss the heart disease epidemic among women in America today. Also on today's program, we will be joined with Dr. David Jenkins, the scientist who developed the glycemic index of foods. Dr. Jenkins will explain the glycemic index and how it relates to health and nutrition. But before we get into today's exciting topics, let's hear the latest research and news affecting our health and longevity today. Dr. Westerdahl presents the Health and Longevity News and Research Update, bringing you the most pertinent and important information about your health and longevity. Well, here's a study that says very few Americans have optimal heart health. And the study shows that the outcome of the study recently published in the journal Circulation, which is the official journal of the American Heart Association, has resulted in the dismal conclusion that only 1 in 1,933 Americans may be meeting the American Heart Association's criteria for a good heart health. Now, Dr. Stephen Reese and his associates analyzed data from 1,933 men and women who participated in the Heart Score study. Surveys, examinations, and test results provided information concerning the presence of the following factors. That's not smoking, meeting physical activity, and healthy diet goals, having a body mass index lower than 25, untreated cholesterol levels of less than 200, blood pressure of lower than 120 over 80, and fasting glucose below 100 milligrams per deciliter. Believe it or not, only one participant met all seven criteria of ideal heart health, and fewer than 10% of the participants had five or more components. Of all the people we assessed, only one out of 1,900 can claim ideal heart health, according to Dr. Reese. Dr. Reese says that our next step is to analyze additional data to confirm this, and based on the results of the additional data, try to develop a multifaceted approach to improve heart health. Well, there's more research to show that obesity is increasing, which leads to liver disease. This is a growing relationship between overweight and obese people, and liver disease is being shown to be on the increase. The epidemic lies in the basic fact that nearly two-thirds of American population is either overweight and obese, and that too much fat can cause a person's liver to malfunction. 
It's overwhelming how many patients we're seeing with this problem, according to Dr. Naam Alcori, who's a hepatologist at the Cleveland Clinic. According to some statistics, about one-third of the U.S. population has non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Most of these people, about 80%, will not develop significant liver disease, but the other 20% will develop non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. Of those, about 20 to 30 percent will go to develop cirrhosis and end-stage liver disease. Now, crunching the numbers leads to about 6 million people dealing with this awful disease. The first signs of the disease is sometimes a swollen stomach, swollen ankles, or vomiting blood. Other people might develop brain changes similar to Alzheimer's, resulting in memory lapses and lack of coordination due to the amount of toxins in a person's system. Eating better, exercising, and losing weight are all possible ways to reverse this disease in its earlier stages. We'll be back with more after this quick break. Would you like to live a happier, healthier, and longer fulfilled life? Then visit us at healthandlongevityradio.com. That's one word, healthandlongevityradio.com. There you'll find valuable information and resources that can help you achieve optimal health and give you the secrets to longevity. Visit us today at healthandlongevityradio.com. Once again, that's healthandlongevityradio.com. It could change your life. Welcome back to Health and Longevity. Do you have questions about nutrition, health, or longevity? This is your chance to have them answered. On each program, Dr. Westerdahl will choose a key question from our listening audience and respond to it on the air. Due to the high volume of emails, Dr. Westerdahl cannot personally answer each question on our broadcast. If you would like to submit a question, please go to our website, healthandlongevityradio.com. Once there, you will see a button to submit your questions. And now, the question of the day. Our question for today is, is it healthy to drink tomato juice out of a can? Well, yes, it is. Now, freshly made tomato juice is probably best, but canned tomato juice also provides excellent nutrition and health benefits as well. The only downside with most canned tomato juices is that they are generally high in sodium, and that's one reason why I often recommend low-sodium V8 juice to my patients because of this. Now, tomato juice, whether it's fresh or canned, contains high levels of lycopene, an antioxidant-rich phytochemical that gives tomatoes their brilliant red color. Now, recent research studies have indicated that lycopene may help reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease. So, drink your tomato juice regularly. It just may save your life. And now... Health and Longevity's special feature, where Dr. Westerdahl interviews leading experts and personalities on vital topics important to your health and longevity. And with me, I'm very honored to have with me today uh, Dr. David Jenkins, MD, PhD. He's the professor of medicine and nutritional sciences at the University of Toronto and St. Michael's Hospital up there in Canada. Pleasure to be with you. Good to see you too. You know, I just saw you on Dr. McDougall's TV show the other day. They repeated uh, the interview that he did with you uh, in Honolulu on the television station. Well, I, I think I was probably more young and more vigorous then, so uh, that was very flattering. Thank you. First of all, let's talk a little bit about what, what are you going to be presenting here at the American College of Nutrition? 
Just a very um, simple overview of where I see the glycemic index having gone over the last 20 years or so. Now, you are the originator, and you actually developed the glycemic index. Tell us briefly for the listeners that they've heard about it, but what is the glycemic index? Well, it's just a way, really, of ranking foods to get another indicator of the food components and their physiological effects. It doesn't take away from the fat, the protein, the carbohydrate, the nature of the fatty acids in the foods, but we hope that it adds another dimension in terms of the degree to which that food will raise the blood glucose relative to either white bread or glucose, which is about uh, um, 130% of white bread. Now, today, your glycemic index has become very popular. There's been a lot of books written about it. There, you know, the whole thing now with high-protein diets, and they're saying carbohydrates are all bad, don't eat carrots, you know, don't eat potatoes, and a lot of these things that uh, some of the popular books are saying. Now, as the developer or the originator of the glycemic index, what are your thoughts regarding... Uh, what's out there today in many of these popular books, high-protein diets and so forth, and how they're interpreting your glycemic index? I think probably, ironically, the best interpretation probably came from Sugar Busters, which was a a New uh, uh, Orleans-originated popular book on the topic. Um, I think others have attempted to use the glycemic index to as a marker of the glycemic impact of the food or the diet. I know that's fair game. I think that we originally intended um, the glycemic index to open people's eyes to sorts of foods and food um, components that might usefully be introduced into the diet because we found that many so-called ethnic foods and ethnic dishes were not being used um, by their their citizens as they move to Western cultures. And I'm thinking of things like beans, peas, legumes, chickpeas. Uh, these sorts of foods were not being eaten by people from uh, Latin America or from Asia when they moved to North America or when uh, they moved to Europe. They tended to leave these things and go basically for mother's pride, fluffy white bread, um, and other sorts of very rapidly digestible carbohydrates. Similarly, um, many of the earlier foods eaten by northern Europeans, uh, like barley, barley soups, or pumpernickel breads, the whole grain, literally whole grain, uh, as opposed to what we call whole grain, but actually entire, almost unbroken grain. That's what I really mean by whole grain those sorts of whole grain foods were being neglected by northern European cultures. So they too were changing the supply of their foods and the nature of the carbohydrate sources. So we felt it was important that one should go back to earlier carbohydrate sources and for those who might uh, neglect them, uh, actually preserve in the diets useful foods. So we originally used this as a tool for looking at the rate of digestion of foods in the hope that one might be able to use this therapeutically and as another um, endeavor to preserve those foods which were useful. 
Let's look at some of the popular diets like uh, Dr. Atkins or the zone diet where they're using, they talk about the glycemic index foods. What are your thoughts in the way they're interpreting or, or utilizing that as part of that diet program that they've developed? Well, my belief is that if they were using this in the context of a plant-based diet, um, I would be um, much happier in passing judgment. I think that our, one of our aims of putting the glycemic index um, out into the public domain and into the scientific domain was to have a means by which people could still maintain the use of plant foods, especially the carbohydrate plant foods, in a sensible way. Um, it was our belief that many of these plant foods contained proteins and sometimes fats, uh, which were generally beneficial, uh, in fact very beneficial to human health, along with their fiber content and along with their mineral and micronutrient contents. So that was really our aim. Our aim was not really to see the elimination of carbohydrate from the diet in the way that is now being advocated um, by a number of books and special approaches to diet. It's possible that um, carbohydrate restriction may suit some people, but then I would suggest that in their place uh, they should substitute calories from nuts and oil seeds um, and uh, fruit such as avocado if they wish to reduce the carbohydrate content of the diet. So they would still be maintaining a plant-based diet um, even if they had a somewhat lower glycemic load. What I see with many of these newer types of books is actually an increased dependency on animal produce which I feel is probably counterproductive, not only from the uh, human health point of view, but from the environmental and ecological point of view, which I think we have to now um, spend much more care and attention um, over um, in view of the enormous impact that human eating habits have on the face of the planet. So what some of these people are saying about the high-protein diets and so forth, they're actually criticizing people sometimes about following vegetarian diets. So you would disagree with that, that approach? I would disagree very radically with that approach because I think that the vegetarian diet can be many things. It can be a high-carbohydrate diet. It can be a low-carbohydrate diet. Um, it can be a healthy diet. It can be an unhealthy diet. My feeling is that it has an enormous potential to be a very healthy diet and it has also an added potential, which is key for the future, and that is it has the ability to be a very environmentally friendly diet. And that, I think, a humane diet and an environmentally friendly diet, and I think that the future will probably judge us by how well we can mesh this with our eating habits. Now, just I want to bring up a couple of things, because the, people are reading this in the books. Carrots. Some of the books say, never eat carrots. What's your, what's your thoughts on that? Because they're too high in carbohydrates or too high on the glycemic index. Well, they're certainly not high in carbohydrate, but they do have a high glycemic index if cooked. 
um, and carrots certainly are sweet and very tasty. The point about it is, though, that if one looks at the glycemic load of the carrot, because it's such a very dilute, watery food with uh, a rich source of fiber and minerals, the carbohydrate content is a very small component. And I think that one has to say that for carbohydrate foods with very low carbohydrate content, the glycemic index is really not important. Okay, here's another one. Potatoes in candy. Candy is better than potatoes. I think that this is an interesting concept. Um, candies usually have sucrose and half their sugar, the fructose moiety, because sucrose is glucose, half glucose and half fructose, the fructose moiety is not counted in the glycemic index. So we only count half the sugar, as it were, um, when you look at candy, whereas we count the entire sugar when you look at potato. So if um, potatoes and candies sometimes look alike, then you have to recognize that half the carbohydrate in the candy is not being trapped in our glycemic index estimation. So I leave that to you to decide uh, whether they're equal. Okay. So in summing up your approach in, in telling people about eating carbohydrates sensibly or eating the right types of carbohydrates, what would you tell people? What recommendations would you give them? I would say that keep carbohydrates in your diet keep them in the high-fiber form, look for the sorts of foods that are traditional, diets that people have existed in good health for millennia on, and the sorts of foods that I would recommend for those who want to have a healthy carbohydrate load in their diet, look for the whole grain pumpernickel breads. Uh, these are tasty and make a change from regular bread. Uh, look for other grains like barley. Have barley soups and stews. These are very good carbohydrate sources. Have your vegetables and fruit. They have plenty of carbohydrate in them and they're good for you. Um, and ab above all, look um, with a degree of, of interest at your legumes, your beans, your peas, your split peas, your chickpeas, uh, lentils, I mean, it was a mess of pottage uh, in the Bible uh, caused one inheritance to be lost um, because of the tastiness of lentil soup. So I think that these sorts of foods, uh, the legumes, the dried legumes, and their dishes made from them, hummus from chickpeas, there are a whole variety of things that are attractive, Boston baked beans without the bacon, uh, without the pork, um, there are a whole load of attractive things that traditionally we've had in legumes, which we're not really having now. The burritos with the, uh, again, cut the lard out, um, but certainly the, the bean pastes, the bean soups. Uh, there are many things that one can do with legumes, and there are many things one can do with whole grain cereals. Um, oats and oat bran excellent source of both viscous soluble fiber and carbohydrate. So a lot of our viscous fibers come with these cereal foods. And we would be depriving ourselves of the ability to actually lower blood cholesterol um, if we didn't include these in generous portions on a daily basis in our diet. That was Dr. David Jenkins. And now let's go to our interview with Dr. Stephen Sinatra.
And we're with Dr. Stephen Sinatra, who's the author of a book, Heart Sense for Women, Your Plan for Natural Prevention and Treatment. And Dr. Sinatra is um, a clinical cardiologist at Manchester Memorial Hospital. He's written numerous books on health and preventive medicine and has his own newsletter out, too, which we can talk about as well. And Dr. Sinatra, welcome. Oh, it's really good to be here, John. Tell us a little bit about heart disease for women. That's your book. A lot of people think heart disease is a man disease, but you're clearly showing here that women need to be concerned about it. And uh, same principles, basically, as far as diet is concerned. What, what are your recommendations from a nutritional standpoint for someone who wants to avoid a heart attack and maybe someone that's had a heart attack so they don't have another one? Sure. I mean, one of the first things uh, is that it's a myth that heart disease just occurs in men. In fact, the statistics of the American Heart Association showed that more women are dying of heart disease than men. And uh, it behooves women now to uh, stop thinking about situations like breast cancer, which is on the mind of every woman, and be thinking more about heart disease. Because it is true that breast cancer is a disaster in women, but you know, only one in nine women die of breast cancer, but one in two uh, die of heart disease. So uh, women need to focus on heart disease. And basically, the formula to not get heart disease is very simple. I mean, I call it my four pillars, which is in the book. I talk about a healthy diet. I talk about an exercise program, uh, targeted nutraceuticals uh, for women. Uh, I have my top ten for women. We can maybe talk about that in a few minutes. And then it's mind-body interactions. Mind-body interactions are very important in preventing any disease, especially heart disease. Let's talk about the nutritional approach to heart disease. So on your program, what do you advise your patients? Well, I, I call it uh, my big three. I mean, if I was stranded on a desert island, uh, I would wish that a few cases of coenzyme Q10 and uh, omega-3 essential fatty acids or fish oil would be washed ashore. And if we could add a little alpha-lipoic acid to that mix and, and things like L-carnitine, um, vitamin C, E, magnesium, uh, certainly the carotenoids and flavonoids, most people would be very, very healthy. Diet part's very important. In fact, uh, if you eat like a, uh, an Asian or a Mediterranean, and I've coined the word PAM, which is a pan-Asian modified Mediterranean, if you eat like that, uh, you're really in great shape because um, these cultures have the lowest incidence of heart disease. Uh, they eat a lot of omega-3s in their diet. Uh, for example, the Mediterraneans eat a lot of purslane, which is like a wild lettuce that grows on the streets. It's a uh, uh, it contains a lot of what we call ALA, or alpha-linolenic acid. The Asians eat a lot of tofu, uh, a lot of fish, which contains uh, DHA and ALA. So these essential fatty acids, um, these acids literally delay aging. They prevent heart disease uh, and even cancer as well. A lot of these cultures also eat a lot of fresh fruits and vegetables. They don't eat large chunks of meat like the Americans do. Uh, they don't get inundated with a lot of petrochemicals or insecticides and pesticides like uh, we do in this country. So um, it's... A good healthy diet is really like a typical Japanese or a, or a typical uh, person from Greece, and you'd be in great shape. Now, you're active in the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine. I just got board certified in that uh, through the health care practitioner group of that, and I've heard you speak there several times. And, of course, the diet you're talking about actually relates to anti-aging medicine, doesn't it? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, I, the diet of antiquity is really the best anti-aging diet. I mean, if you want to really regain the fountain of your youth. Um, don't eat anything out of a box or a can. Now, if you can do that, you're in great shape because, you, you know, you're not going to get the trans fatty acids. You're not going to get the hydrogenated oils. You're not going to get the preservatives. Uh, and if you can eat fresh fruits and vegetables, preferably organic now, and, uh, you know, you'd be in great shape. 
Now, we, on our program, we really advocate vegetarian diets, and I'm just curious what your thoughts on vegetarian diets are as far as heart disease prevention. Of course, Dean Ornish has done a lot of work in that. Uh, what, what, what are your thoughts? Vegetarian diets are very good, but you must, you must supplement a vegetarian diet with essential fatty acids. So um, while flaxseed oil is okay, remember, flaxseed oil is overplayed. Um, 10% of flaxseed oil is really turned into the body to DHA and EPA. So you have to eat an enormous amount of flaxseed. I prefer the flaxseed crushed up because of the flax ligands and it will improve your immune response. So I'm less of an advocate of the flaxseed oil. But like uh, for the algae, for the vegetarian, you'd want to use the algae oils, um, uh, which you get from, from algae, um, which contains DHA and EPA, uh, or your crushed up flaxseed. But if you are a strict vegetarian, and you don't want to take any animal product, you can chew some of these omega-3 capsules and always spit out the gelatin. Let's talk real quickly about Q10 because you've written a book on it. And uh, first of all, coenzyme Q10, the source that's used in a supplement, is it coming from an animal source or is it actually uh, derived from some other source? No, all the CoQ10 is produced in Japan and it comes from uh, micro... Actually, it comes from yeast. Yeah, so it doesn't come from an animal source. Now, you can get CoQ10 in veggie caps, um, which uh, is all vegetarian, or uh, we use a soft gel, and I tell my uh, my patients that if you are a strict vegetarian or if you're kosher, uh, you can always bite into the soft gel. It tastes like a little bit like peanut butter, and uh, um, you know, spit the soft gel out, just just like a fish oil gel. For our listeners that may they may have heard of it, but they don't know what it is. What is coenzyme Q10, and how does it relate to heart health? CoQ10 is a um, a very potent uh, antioxidant. All our cells in our body make it. Uh, it starts to fall after the age of about 40. Uh, after the age of about 70, it really drops off. And after the age of 90, we don't find it in the body too much. Um, it, um, it's a very powerful vitamin-like substance. It has antioxidant capabilities. It has anti-aging effects. Predominantly, do it's a, it's a membrane stabilizer. And just getting your boards in internal medicine, I mean, in uh, anti-aging medicine, uh, you know that the sine qua non of aging is membrane uh, destruction. So if you have a membrane stabilizer like CoQ10, you can delay the aging process. It also has an effect on platelets, a favorable effect, and it also has what we call bioenergetic activity, which means that it stimulates the production of energy factors such as ATP, which enhance pulsation in the body. And you've got to have pulsation of cells because once your cells stop pulsating, well, then they, they die. So uh, that's why CoQ10 is an integral part of health. What is the recommended dosage for someone that's going to start taking CoQ10 as a supplement on a regular basis? If you're a healthy individual, I recommend like uh, 30 milligrams of hydrosoluble CoQ10, which is the equivalent of about 100 milligrams of standard CoQ10 for healthy people. If you're compromised, neurodegenerative disease or or cancer or heart disease, uh, I'll go much higher. In my heart disease patients, I frequently go to four to 600 milligrams or like 180 milligrams of Q-gel. To learn more about Dr. Sinatra's book on coenzyme Q10, see our website. To learn more about the books written by our guests and books written or recommended by Dr. Westerdahl in this program, please visit our website at healthandlongevityradio.com. There you can learn how to obtain your copy of these valuable and informative books. Search each page for yourself and see how you can live a happier, healthier, and longer life. Visit us today at healthandlongevityradio.com. Once again, that's healthandlongevityradio.com. That's all for this week. Until our next broadcast, we wish you the best of health. 
This has been Health and Longevity with Dr. John Westerdahl, a production of Life Talk Radio. Join us again next week on the same station and time for Health and Longevity. The preceding information on this program has been general information about your health and is not to be taken as professional medical advice, nor is it intended to serve as a substitute for medical attention. Do not change your diet or exercise habits without guidance from your medical doctor, especially if you have health problems or are on medication. Do not change your medications without the advice and supervision of your medical doctor. If you have a medical condition, we encourage you to seek the consultation of a medical doctor experienced in dietary change and lifestyle medicine. And as always, we wish you the best of health.